Hey, Democracy in Danger listeners, we have our last rebroadcast coming up for you in just a sec. In a couple of weeks, we'll be back to launch season seven and introduce you to our new guest host, Emily Burrell. Stay tuned. Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Robert Armengol, sitting in for Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute, this is Democracy in Danger. Will, one of the enduring narratives of the catastrophic 2016 election in the United States is the story of Russian meddling and conspiracy mongering. Look, we know that Vladimir Putin's operatives generated 76 million interactions on Facebook, 180 million likes on Instagram, 10 million tweets. Yeah, and, and we know also that within a few years after the election, some 17% of Americans would come to believe in the QAnon delusion, an idea that a cabal of child sex traffickers is somehow running the world. Yeah, but you know what? A harder question to understand is why has that kind of disinformation been so widely accepted? Maybe the rise of these conspiracy theories reveals a bigger problem, like the fraying of American political culture, for instance, the loss of a common purpose, a common language in our politics. Well, for our last episode in season five, we've invited a guest who spent a lot of time over the last few years thinking about just that issue. Anand Girdadas is with us from New York. He's a writer and political analyst for MSNBC, and he's the author of a new book, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. Anand, welcome to Democracy in Danger. Thank you so much for having me. I, I just want to correct one thing. When you said this is the last episode of season five, you know, when you have a podcast called Democracy in Danger in today's America, every episode may be your last. So so just just think about that, you know? It's a frightening point, thought, yeah. but uh, on the other hand, you know, business is booming. There's, there's plenty of interest. Um, well, Anand, you start your book with a story of intrigue that sounds very John le Carre-like. Two Russian agents, both women, come into the United States in 2014, and their plan is to sabotage American politics. They're not spies in a conventional sense. They're part of this gigantic Russian troll farm that is trying to sow disinformation and distrust and division in the United States among American citizens through the use of social media. Just tell us their story and set that up for us and remind us how that works in developing your the argument of your new book. Um, these two women, uh, Alexandra Krylova and Anna Bogacheva, arrived in the United States in June 2014. And I first read about them in the you know, Bob Mueller indictments from some years ago and was kind of intrigued by, in my imagination at least, the kind of Thelma and Louise story that I imagine. These, these two Russian women from this organization called the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg uh, with kind of Kremlin backing for doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. And these two women arrived in the country and did information gathering, right? And what's interesting is given that what the work was feeding into was a troll farm, was tweets and Insta posts and whatever, I always thought it was very significant that they sent two people on a road trip all across the country, many, many states, meeting people, meeting activists, meeting uh, people engaged in politics. And the reason they did that was because the tweets and Instagram posts and things that those two women's work would eventually inform was really serious work. Um, it's really important to look at the text. 
And and I, like most people, I don't think had read the text of the Russian tweets, not in a concerted way. We'd all probably seen them without realizing we'd seen them in 2015, 2016. So I, so I sat down and read them and I, I got some help from two scholars at Clemson University picking two, a left troll and a right troll that had been invented by this agency and then had spewed these tweets and had been very successful, gotten a lot of followers. And I downloaded all of the right trolls tweets and all of the left trolls tweets in order and started reading them like a book. And what I learned was some of the common media caricatures or simplifications of what this thing was were just that, simplifications, or in some cases wrong. I mean, one simplification that I think a lot of listeners will remember is the Russians are trying to elect Trump. Now, it is the case that that was certainly one of the projects. But if you look at these tweets, they were amplifying a whole bunch of American causes on the left and right, and they were trying to build up a bunch of things that were provocative, confrontational, inflammatory, some of which were really good things and some of which were Donald Trump, right? They they built up Black Lives Matter and critiques of whiteness as ferociously as they did build up Donald Trump. They were trying to do something deeper than like help one party succeed in a contest. And it, it also struck me that it wasn't just fanning the flames of anger and division, which was sort of another frame you hear. They were interested in ginning up a sense of contempt, mutual contempt among citizens, and a sense of mutual dismissal, fatalism. Mm. They'll never change. They'll never come around. They're always going to be like that. How's that different from just sowing division? Okay, great. It's a very important. At the heart of this book is the idea that anger and division are fine, <laughs> and contempt and dismissal are incredibly problematic in a democracy. And I know that may sound like those words are all the same. So let's unpack that for a second, right? Democracy is about, we have $10. Should we help your kids first or my aging parents? Democracy is about, we have this river and you need that river to flow this way for your farms and I need it to stop flowing this way to save the planet. Democracy is about who should be led into the country and how on what terms. like. It's going to get real. It's supposed to get real. It's not supposed to be, you know, like a little like English tea party. Like it's normal to be angry about that stuff. That's kind of what it's about. Uh, here's the but. Although it may sound similar, contempt and dismissal is there's no point talking to this person. This person is rotten to their core. This person is not of good faith. I know what they're going to say. I don't need to talk to them. And once people don't believe talking will get them anywhere. You are essentially opening the door, I believe, to two things. One, tyrants coming back in. One guy should just make all the decisions for everybody because it's too hard for us to talk our way into the future together. And the second is opening the door to political violence because if I'm not confident that you and I can talk our way into deciding what our kids learn in school, then maybe I just eliminate you in order to get what I want my kids to learn in school. And, and this book is an attempt to say, hold up, not so fast. Talk remains the only way to choose the future if you don't want to be ruled or be shot up in the public square by insurrectionists and political terrorists. We have a way of choosing the future. We need to believe in it again. And I went and spent a couple of years with people, organizers, activists, doing the best work in this country to still endeavor to change minds people who refuse to write people off, people who show it can still be done, even now, people who are in many ways the antidote 
to the poison that that Russian troll farm represented. Well, let me ask you this. I'm especially interested in people you spoke to who, for instance, are trying to deprogram cult followers of QAnon to get people to rethink their climate denialism and so forth. Tell us uh, some of their stories. I did some interviews in 2019 while I was still trying to figure out what the book is and then got real clarity around it in March and April 2020, right as the pandemic was starting. Hmm. The issue wasn't vaccines at that time, but masks and just basic denial of reality. And that kind of led me to two different people who I write about in my in my chapter on disinformation and the persuaders, Diane Benscoder and John Cook. Diane Benscoder is a former cult victim uh, a long time ago in the 70s. And she, you know, she became a cult deprogrammer, which is something that certain cult victims feel like doing, partly out of revenge. And they're totally different, right? She's she's someone who's kind of a practitioner of cult extraction. You got two hours in a room with someone whose parents have paid you to save them. And then John is like a cognitive scientist who started with, you know, how do you protect people from climate denialism and that disinformation? And then I was speaking to them both in the context of a pandemic, where they were both seeing what was going on. And then QAnon started happening like a, a year or so into our conversations, really was at a fever pitch. And they both were really in parallel arriving at a kind of radical thesis about the disinformation and cultism problem, which is that at some level, perhaps rather depressingly, this problem of manipulation, organized, large-scale manipulation is probably endemic in the age of the internet. It's just going to be impossible to ensure that there is no disinformation or that climate lies or vaccine lies or mask lies or Joe Biden lies or inflation lies, as we saw ricocheting around the United States, that these are not around. If it's endemic, then the correct approach is inoculation instead of kind of extermination of the disinformation. You talk about this experiment that John Cook does, and he arrives at the conclusion that when you give people facts, it doesn't really help. But when you undermine the source of the disinformation, that seems to help. Flesh that out for me. What is? How does he figure that out? When it comes to the functioning of disinformation, what I learned from Diane and John and others is that there's essentially two very powerful emotions or sentiments in people that relate to disinformation. Sentiment one is, I want the world to make easy sense. The world's complicated. I'm busy. My kid is screaming in the other room right now. I want the world to make easy sense. The second powerful impulse we have is, I do not want to be anybody's fool. None of us want to be conned. What John Cook and Diane Benscoder taught me is that that second desire, the desire not to be anybody's dupe, that is the only sentiment powerful enough to pit against the desire to have the world make easy sense. It, it's clearly outgunned at the moment if someone has succumbed, but it's the only force powerful enough to build up within them to compete, which is different from you saying, hey, uncle, you're wrong about two degrees Celsius, or hey, uncle, you're wrong about Soros and Black Lives Matter, or hey, that doesn't work, right? Implanting your own facts doesn't work. But building up saying, hey, look, I love you, uncle, and I I see that some of these arguments you're, you're parroting. I read about how the Murdochs have, in a concerted way, pushed those arguments out into the world, 
at the behest of their like oil company advertisers. And it's really similar to what the cigarette companies did a generation ago. And I know how much you suffered when you lost your mom to emphysema. And I'm just, I'm concerned that you're being played in a way that's really for their benefit because they're just fooling, playing this playbook that is really well-documented. Like, you know, I'm not going to say that's going to work all the time. But what John Cook and his teams and many, many, many have found is that that stands a chance. Planting the seed of doubt, trying to displace what people believe rather than replace what people believe. Let me ask if that's similar to the way in which social media functions in which basically there is a physical chemical response that we all have to the appeal to the to the draw of engagement on social media if i'm if i'm hearing you right this is actually playing a sort of similar game which is you're being conned you should be outraged about this you're a dupe you're a fool the oil companies are making money off of your credulity mm. and so i mean it's in the service of a of an awakening but it is also is it not playing to that sense of outrage or or discovery Oh my gosh, I finally see the con. I finally see where the P is hiding under the under the cards. Is that is that hell? I mean, obviously if it's if it's working, great. But are there any costs to that kind of awakening or do you think that this is really the only tool we've got so we better we better try to use it? It's a good question. I mean, I would say this. Conspiracy theories don't flourish in a vacuum. They flourish under certain conditions where there is a lot of unexplained phenomena that are maybe not explained by conventional frames that people have. And there are imbalances of power. And, you know, there's been research on how conspiracy theories flourish more with extreme inequality because there are, in fact, powerful forces acting on you without your consent. The problem with conspiracy theories is they misdescribe and misdiagnose and pick the wrong things. Like, it is absolutely true that Bill Gates has way too much power over public life. It's just not true that he put a microchip in the vaccine. And like, these things become distractions from the fact that you actually should be outraged about how much power Bill Gates had over vaccine policy, given that he's a random private citizen. Hmm. That should, in fact, outrage you. And it's true. It's not a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theories get at intuitions people have that the world is run in ways that are not visible to them. And that's true. So I think it's actually very important for pro-democracy, pro-reality forces to get in there and offer true explanatory frames. But I think it's important to document how these things actually work so that the conspiracy theorizing has less necessity and has less oxygen. And I wanna come back to this point about progressives needing to get in on the game of persuasion and actually reach out to people who have radically different views from them. And I'm wondering about this distinction that you implicitly set up between persuasion and manipulation. So if I'm hearing you right, persuasion is good. You want to champion that. That's a fundamental part of democracy. And manipulation, which is what we see coming out of conspiracy theories, out of QAnon, out of climate denialism, that's bad but they seem to operate in similar ways. So I want you to kind of help me understand the distinction there. Is this a know it when you see it kind of thing? Is there something more that helps us kind of articulate why we need more persuasion and less manipulation, how we can tell the difference? Yeah, it's such a great question. I, I had long and kind of really beautiful conversations with Diane Benscoder, the ex-cult uh, deprogrammer about this in particular. And this is a very important distinction for her. 
I would say there's two things, two, two factors that you should look at when you're trying to figure out is something manipulative or persuasive. One is, is the actual arguments, is the actual substance true or false? So falsehood is one good mark of manipulation versus persuasion. The second is for whose benefit is the advocacy happening? And I think in reality, there are industries and arenas besides politics where you see maybe this blurred. I mean, I think public relations and advertising, I mean, these are places where, you know, these techniques of appealing to emotions and some of the things I'm advocating, these can be used to make people want to go to war. These tactics can be used to make people buy Diet Coke. And these tools can be made to make liberal democracy go on and grow. Um, part of what I'm arguing in the book and a lot of the characters I'm interviewing are saying is there's a kind of contempt for the use of many of these tools on the pro-democracy side in a sense that we are above emotional appeals. We're above mm. kind of catering to human psychology in this way. We're above the kind of linguistic play that someone like Frank Luntz does on the right. The right is very effective at calling late-term abortions, partial birth abortions, right? Um, calling the estate tax, estates being things most people don't have, the death tax, death being something everyone has. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking, you know, Medicare for all, which I can't believe people actually call it that. Like, it's, it's just naming something after a government program. Like, no one feels a thing about that, right? Particularly no one who's not on Medicare right now and has not experienced it. Like, why isn't that called freedom care? I don't think that's like Orwellian or manipulative. I mean, I, I tell you, my freedom would expand greatly because I'm on Obamacare right now. And unless I have something like actually that I feel could be life-threatening, I avoid going to the doctor because I'm just still not sure that it's not going to result in a $6,000 bill for reasons that I couldn't foresee, right? I would really benefit from the freedom personally to go to the doctor whenever I had a problem with my body. Every Democratic Party speech, every issue should be reframed in the language of freedom in part because it's true. Mm. One of the chapters toward the end of the book deals with community organizers who use what they call deep canvassing. You know, it sounds like it is similar to what you're getting at here in that they're employing some of these persuasive techniques in ways that go beyond just the usual knock at the door, here's a flyer, go to the polls. Yeah. What does it look like? This is a thing that grew out of stinging defeats for the LGBT cause in California in 2008, Prop 8, where they had gay marriage for a few months and then lost it through popular referendum. And what grew out of that was this experiment called deep canvassing, where a lot of these gay rights campaigners wanted to know why their neighbors hated them. And what they found was through trial and error, and, and this has since been you know, peer-reviewed academic studies have really borne out this method. They went door to door. They developed a, a protocol and a kind of loose script where they walked people through. Instead of like, here's a flyer, as you said, it's like half an hour, 45 minutes at the door. And it's incredible the frequency with people want to have those conversations, want to talk, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of people are married to people who they wish wanted to hear what they thought <laughs> as much as these these canvas right these canvassers are like the spouse you never had so they're standing at the door and they what they first do is they kind of radically listen strategically empathetically listen they don't hide what they think they don't hide that they're here to advocate for gay rights or for trans rights or for immigrant rights they don't conceal that they also don't hit you over the head with it they declare it somewhere in there and then they keep eliciting 
Why do you feel this way about trans people? Tell me all the things you fear, all the false things you've heard about groomers and bathrooms, just get it all out. And in this phase, it's important to not do what all of us do, which is feel a moral obligation to call things out as soon as you hear them, right? I mean, I think we would all, like I was watching this canvassing, like I felt like I watching them was being complicit. And you gotta just train yourself like, it's okay to hear some bad things. You're not complicit. They're saying it, you're not saying it. And then where the protocol goes, and this goes back to the disinformation stuff, is not trying to replace what they're saying with what you want them to think. It is trying to displace, dislodge, unsettle what they're saying by having it compete in their own hearts with some other things they also believe. And one of these canvassers, Steve DeLine, one of the pioneers of this method, he said, you know, what I've come to learn through this work is that most people are 60-40 on most things. What that means is you may say, I'm just against trans people. It doesn't mean that that's the only thing you feel. That means that's your stance. And what is the 40 in that example? The 40 is that you think of yourself as someone who fights for underdogs because you are an underdog, right? You like the Mets. <laughs> um, the 40 may be that you are black or a woman or an immigrant. And you remember what it's like to be seen a particular way because of things you can't control about yourself and to want to scream to people, no, you got me, you got me wrong. And so the idea is to activate that 40% and put it in balance. Correct. And to play that up, whatever that is for people yeah. against what currently is overwhelming it in the direction of prejudice. And what these people have found again and again is that 30 minutes, 40 minutes on a door can achieve the effect of years of like the will and grace effect. I just want to, there's a phrase in your book that you use to set up this problem of the, the crisis that we're in, which is write-off culture. Essentially, we write off half of the electorate as unpersuadable. And that puts us in a position where we've already kind of thrown in the towel on deliberative democracy. I'm interested though, that in your analysis, the work of persuasion basically has to be done more or less by people who are in the pro-democracy camp. Isn't that putting a big burden on progressive forces? Why is it our responsibility to fix democracy? I mean, why can't I write off the far right? They appear to me to be unpersuadable. Uh, I would actually turn that 100% on its head and say the far right is very interested in persuasion and has developed an elaborate concerted apparatus of persuasion, philosophy of persuasion. And a lot of that goes into actually manipulation rather than persuasion. And contempt, right? Don't they, part of their drug is, well, you can join us and be contemptuous. Mm. Correct, but let me, let me make this distinction. This may sound provocative, but let me say, broadly speaking, the right in America today has an exclusionary agenda, but tactically, in the contest of politics, reads to many people as an accessible, inclusionary, come as you are movement. Mm. Interesting. But you mean certain people, Right, because you have to fit the sort of identity categories that are willing to be embraced. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. If you look at what's happened with Hispanic men in the Trump era, mm. it isn't just white people, right? Yeah. Well, many Hispanics identify as white, which is part of the problem. So racism <laughs> runs strong in the Hispanic community. <laughs> Correct, but they are winning people they shouldn't be winning. This is right, my point. Right, right. And I think they're doing that by reading to many people as a movement without preconditions for entry, which is different from what they want to do with power. 
So they can be waging a war on immigrants and Hispanic immigrants in particular, and still somehow be appealing to 30 to 40% of Hispanics. There's something telling there, right? Mm. Whereas the left has a an agenda of radical inclusion. I mean, I would say if you implemented the agenda of inclusion the left has, it would be the most inclusive program in the history of the world. I think the left reads to a lot of people as being a club that's a little complicated to join. Mm. If you don't have the right terms, if you don't say the right thing, if you don't know what white supremacy is, you don't know what the pronouns thing is, you need to figure it out on your own time and then ring the doorbell once you're ready. And what I'm suggesting is if the most exclusionary movement in American history right now reads as open and the most inclusive reads as closed, we have a very, very big problem on our hands. And what I what I am championing is not for progressive forces to do, you know, burdensome work that the right is not doing. I'm I'm advocating that progressive forces frankly catch up with the right's ability to speak to anxieties, speak to fears, have a sense of fight, create a sense of belonging, not just asking people to chip in five bucks, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that's actually, I just wanted to say, that's a very helpful framing I had not thought of. The notion that the price of entry into this inclusive, multicolored tapestry of the left is, is actually quite high for a lot of people, even though what we're saying is, join us, everyone can be a member. Uh, whereas the right, you're basically like, there's nothing you can say uh, in here that will offend anybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, Anand Girdadas, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy in Danger. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for this conversation. Anand Girdadas is a writer and political commentator. You've probably seen him on MSNBC. He's the author of the new book, Persuaders. His earlier works are India Calling, The True American, and the New York Times bestseller from 2018, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Democracy in Danger is part of the Democracy Group podcast network. Visit democracygroup.org to find all our sister shows. We'll be right back. Well, what do you think, Will? Are you going to do some deep canvassing around the holiday dinner table? I don't know. It sounds tempting, but it takes a lot of patience. I think one of the things that I've found is that um, patience has worn thin. And the idea of deep listening and teasing out questions and conversations in order to find common ground with people who you have a lot of disagreements with, that takes a lot of emotional, uh, psychological labor. I love the idea that it can have meaningful results. And I do think Anand points to this really crucial dimension of our public life, which is that we are cloistered. We are divided by devices and by suburbs and by car culture. We don't commune together as much as we should. We don't I mean, you sit on the subway and people are just staring at their phones. I right? know. I mean, it's uncanny uh, how quiet now airports have become. And they're doing social media. <laughs> right, exactly. And their earphones are in. But, um, you Listening know, to I, podcasts, of course. Listening to good podcasts. But if we're going to get somewhere, I suppose it's about not just listening, but doing things together. I, I think uh, small gestures in community building 
is not kumbaya. It's actually like, okay, let's go clean up the river. Uh, let's go pick up trash on the street in the neighborhood. Um, let's form a dog walking group. I mean, these are things we actually are already doing. And maybe with a little bit more intentionality, they can actually start to have a kind of a leopard print effect and you begin to build a new way of dialogue. But it does feel too slow. I feel like the house is on fire. Um, and I am more it, it you know personally wired to want to see my political leaders showing their own rage and outrage and and fear of the collapse of democracy. I think Anand is reminding us there's a lot of real sort of human relationships that have to be built if we're going to change uh, our politics from one of of rage and contempt to one of persuasion. I get your point about the slow burn, though. I have to say there's something to be said for uh, the image of political leaders maybe thinking a little more deeply themselves about how to connect with their own communities. Um, you know, so much is driven by the polls now. So much is driven by campaign fundraising. I'm reminded in his argument about the work that it takes to build rapport in a community when you're doing ethnography. I mean, he's essentially asking us to take this sort of anthropological empathetic approach. And that does take a whole lot of effort. And, you know, it's hard, but it seems to me like there, you know, there might be something there. Yeah, I, I hope there's something there. I, sometimes I feel like the toothpaste is sort of already out of the tube. I mean, our politics now is basically being organized and strategized around whether you can get a, a very short media clip that can go viral. That's not deliberative yeah. democracy. Uh, but, you know, if the differences really are so carefully balanced between 60 and 40, then actually maybe we're not so far gone as we sometimes fear. That's all for our summer rebroadcasts of Democracy in Danger. Stay with us as we get ready to launch season seven, all about the culture and art of democracy. There's always more to read and see on our webpage, dindanger.org. You'll find show notes, excerpts from books, and much more. And do your part to enhance the social media ecosystem. Share our pages with your friends. This episode of Democracy in Danger was produced by me, Robert Armengol, with help from Rebecca Berry, Ellie Bashkow, Ava Kretzinger-Walters, Ellis Nolan, and B. Webster. Support comes from the University of Virginia's College of Arts and Sciences. The show is a project of UVA's Karsh Institute of Democracy. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective of WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Will Hitchcock. Have a good one.